Hey there, I'm Dana, a registered dietitian and registered dietitian exam tutor. And this is my podcast where we go over all of the questions that have been posted to my Facebook page, Registered Dietitian Exam Study Group with Dana over the past week. And we not only chat about the answers, but why are they the answers as well as answer any questions that students have posted on the page throughout the week. This is a weekly podcast, so be sure to tune in each week for new questions. And of course, I would love to see any of you guys at the live version of this on Sunday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern time. So the first question we have here is going to be um, a question from Malia. So she has two questions. So again, if you haven't brought your paper and your calculator out and pen, definitely get that because we'll kind of go over these live. So her first question is how many grams of protein and carbs um, should be in a diet for a girl on a 1400 calorie diet to lose weight. So with this one, you know, this is definitely an interesting question. I think, you know, the first thing you want to be thinking about with any of the weight loss questions is that 3,500 calories deficit is going to be equal to kind of one pound of weight loss. Um, so definitely, you know, we want to make sure that especially if this is a girl, you know, who we don't know what age she is, but she's growing, we want to make sure she's getting adequate, um, you know, protein definitely. So if we're kind of organizing, you know, her diet, you know, and there's different options, you know, and we're saying, you know, that she needs 1400 calories, we would want to pick the option that's creating a little bit of a deficit. So the answer would be something that's going to be less than 1400, you know, to encourage that deficit. A lot of the time, these questions like on the exam, they're saying like, you know, the patient has this many needs, they're getting tube feeds or, or TPN with this many calories and protein in it. And you're trying to answer like how many pounds would they lose in a week? So for the weight loss type of questions, you want to calculate the calorie deficit over, you know, a time period, you know, if it says, you know, a week, a month, and then divide that total calorie deficit by 3,500 to determine weight loss. So the next question she asks is a tube feeding question. So she says, how much free water is an 85% formula with... 65 milliliter rate at 24 hours a day. So when we're thinking about the tube feeding formulas, you know, not all of it's water um, and not all of it's feeding. So we're going to have more calories in something that has less free water. So you want to kind of think about, you know, less water leaves more room for calories. So if I have something that has a lot of water, it's typically lower calorie so in general, what I find is helpful for kind of tube feeding and thinking about free water is there's ranges for each, but kind of thinking about what's the average amount of free water for each formula. So for a 1.0 calorie per milliliter formula, that's going to be about 80% water. For a 1.5 calorie per milliliter formula, it's going to be about 75% water. And then when we're thinking about our two calorie per milliliter formulas, they're going to be about um, 70% water. So that will kind of get you pretty far with the type of tube free questions. And again, it might not get you right the nail on the head, but you'll be able to be like, oh, okay, that one's kind of the closest. And so with any tube free question, 
that's asking us for how much free water, we need to calculate out the total volume first. So they're running it at 65 milliliters per hour times 24 hours. So we'll do 65 times 24. So that's giving me a total volume of 1,560. And we're saying it's 85% free water. So we would do that times 0.85. And so we're getting the answer of 1,326 milliliters of free water in this formula. Okay, next question. Thinking about anthropometric measures, in what order does malnutrition in the pediatric population manifest? So very different than our adult population where we're thinking like, you know, severe wasting and, you know, PO intake less than 50% over five days, you know, greater than 10% weight loss in six months. In pediatric, we're using the growth charts. So when we're thinking about malnutrition and our pediatric population, there's two growth charts we want to be using. We want to be using the weight for age and then our height slash stature slash length, right, depending on how old the child is, if they're lying down or standing up, to age. So we're always using the to age for our malnutrition diagnosis. And so when we're thinking about the two different types of diagnosis we can have, we can have acute malnutrition, which is going to end up being a low weight for height. That's going to be acute because what we're saying, I'm sorry, a low weight for age. So we're going to, in acute malnutrition, we're going to be having a low weight for age because what we're saying is this is just an acute issue. So the patient is just going to be skinny. It hasn't gone on long enough that it's impacting their height. Versus when we have chronic malnutrition, we're going to see that stunting. We're going to see the low, um, the low height for age. So acute is low weight for age, and then chronic is going to be low height for age. Um, we can also definitely, one person commented, can we use the mean upper arm circumference? Definitely we can use that, right? Because we know kind of that mid upper arm circumference is a great marker of malnutrition um, and it's really cheap too. So great answers there. So next up, we have a question from Julia. And this question was definitely a lot of people, you know, were commenting on it. And I even commented on it too, because one thing to note is I always am monitoring, you know, the answers. Um, and I'll throw in something, you know, if I'm like, oh, people are getting too far off base or people are really, um, are really confused. So I'll always kind of comment if needed, like I did on this one. So Julia says, I, um, this is the question. What is the hang time for an open system. There seems to be conflicting information in Inman. One says four hours, one says eight hours. And so this is a great point to remind you that Inman is a great reference. You know, I recommend that my students have it. I used it to study for my exam, but it's not a Bible. So that's why these types of classes are really, really helpful because you don't want to leave that the Inman and be like, wait, you know, I'm not, I'm still confused. And this is when post the question on the page, do a Google search, because you always want to kind of be looking outside that resource to add on your, no matter what, you're 
always an admin going to need to Google because maybe you want to see a picture. Maybe it didn't go into as much detail as it. I have a lot of students too who benefit from just kind of getting more information and then backing up to what they need. So lots of different, um, you know, reasons why you want to rely on other resources and why I love these types of questions on the page. So the first thing to think about is what is the difference between an open and a closed system? So a closed system means it's a tube feeding bag, you know, and I posted a picture on the page, but also you can just Google it too, where you're kind of spiking the bag, putting it to the tubing and then running it. You're not opening it and dumping in the different cans. So this, you know, is great because it decreases the risk of bacterial contamination. But then what if my patient needs like 1.2 liters? Usually these bags, and they're kind of like big cartons, are one liter. So I'm going to have a lot of waste unless my patient's like running continuously and I'm constantly changing it. Versus the open system, you'll have a bag. They're often called like kangaroo bags. And you're literally taking a can of tube feeding. It literally looks like a can and dumping it in there. So the pro of that is it allows you to have less waste because you're able to be like, oh, they only need, you know, 1.7 liters. I'm only going to put, you know, maybe I need to put 1.8 in there with the cans. But you cannot have it out as long because it's not as sterile, right? There's air in there, you know, could be bacteria. So when we're thinking about an open system, the guidelines is for it to be out no more than 12 hours. 12 hours is the max. Typically, you will change at eight. Um, but definitely, like in my hospital, I can see it anywhere between 12 and eight. 12 is like you must. Eight is when you can start to think about changing it. And that's because, you know, you don't want to have any kind of contamination. Now, where it gets confusing is if I'm talking about a pediatric formula, you know, I take this in lack, I stir it, you know, I mix it up. That cannot be out for more than four hours. So you want to think about with these questions, you know, what is it asking you? You know, is it adult versus pediatric? What's going on? And in the um, and in that post too, I also commented some great resources. Again, go to Google, get reliable information. There's a resource from Abbott. You know, I posted. Um, you know, a picture of it too. So definitely don't be afraid to do a little Google search. That's definitely going to help you. But great question. Um, and thanks everyone for the comments. And it seems like the consensus is that Inman, you know, between the 2019 and 2020 says two different, um, two different things. So again, best to ask and we can chat about it. Okay. Next up, I have gave you guys a meme and I said, and the meme is like a Kermit on fire. And it says, when you squeeze the last rep and the lactic acid hits your muscles. I always love a good nutrition meme. Feel free to tag me in them on Instagram. Um, but I said, why is lactic acid um, created? And so when we're thinking about, you know, our glucose metabolism and all of those who came to last week's class on glucose metabolism, I know you guys are experts. But when we're thinking about glucose metabolism, you know, right, I'm glucose, glucose 6-phosphate, pyruvic acid. But then if I don't have any oxygen in my environment, I'm an anaerobic environment, I can't go from pyruvic acid down to acetyl-CoA. So what's going to happen is my body's going to shuttle this pyruvic acid 
into the lactic acid cycle or the Cori cycle. And what I kind of like to think of is it's kind of a, it's being stored kind of as lactic acid waiting for more oxygen to be available. And you want to think about when this happens. So this isn't, I'm like suffocating, right? And I can't breathe. This is when I'm like, you know, like running to the bus or like jumping up and down really fast where my oxygen consumption is just quicker than oxygen delivery. So my lactic acid is kind of sitting there being like, okay, do we have, um, do we have oxygen yet? I'm ready to go back to pyruvic acid into acetyl-CoA. So when we're exercising, what if you're like sprinting, that pain in your legs right after is what you're feeling is the lactic acid buildup. And that's why like a lot of people like roll their legs to help get that out. Versus if, you know, I'm lifting weights at the gym and like a day or two later, I'm like, oh, whoa, my big muscles, they're sore, right? That's the muscle fibers tearing and reforming. And that's kind of the muscle growth. So lactic acid buildup is temporary versus kind of that muscle strain and pain, not permanent, but it's a little longer, a little longer lasting. Okay, next question. I said, can PKU patients eat bread? And this question stemmed from, because I had one of my students email me and she's like, you know, what's the, what's the deal with PKU? And again, this is a great question because, right, when we're quote unquote studying PKU, we're like, oh, perfect. Yeah, no phenylalanine, um, supplement tyrosine, done. But, right, that's not enough for the exam, right? Because I need to be able to think of, well, what foods would have phenylalanine in them? So when we're thinking about phenylalanine, we need to back up into our biochemistry in domain one to say, what do I know about phenylalanine? And I know phenylalanine is an essential amino acid because what I'm thinking, right, is my TV till PMH. And so I know that P is phenylalanine. And I know that essential amino acids are in animal products. So knowing that, I can say, you know what? Any animal product is going to have phenylalanine in it. So, you know, also protein foods are going to have phenylalanine in it. So I need to be careful. So if you're thinking about, um, you know, a PKU person's diet, and I posted a picture on here, um, but you can also Google like PKU diet pyramid to see the same picture. Your main stay of your diet is these PKU specific formulas that are going to have all of your amino acids except phenylalanine and lots of tyrosine. So that's the main piece of your diet. Then the next piece is that you can have fruits and vegetables because these tend to be low in phenylalanine. And so that's the majority of your diet is going to be these phenylalanine-free formulas plus fruits and vegetables. Then you can have low-protein foods. So when I asked, can PKU patients have bread, it has to be low-protein bread. It has to be low-protein pasta, low-protein milk because you're, otherwise you're going to have too much phenylalanine. So they can have bread if it's a low-protein bread. And then after that, the next layer are things that have a little bit more phenylalanine in it. So, you know, this would be kind of regular bread or things like peas or broccoli. And then, you know, like the same as all of us, right, a little bit of oil. So when we're thinking about PKU, again, we want to make sure we're not just going phenylalanine 
and tyrosine, right? You want to think, well, how does it connect? Because on the exam, they're not just going to be like, which amino acid is conditionally essential, right? They're going to ask you something like this or which diet would be most appropriate. So, good questions. Okay, so then we got another set of questions from a student. Um, so this first one, and again, this is a calculating one, so grab your calculator, pencil. Okay, so it says, based on the monthly cafeteria sales report shown below, which item would the dietitian most likely remove from the menu? And so what it's telling us here is we have lasagna, there's 200 units sold, the selling price is $3 each, the raw food cost is $135, and the prime cost is going to be our $2, um, is going to be our $2. Then we have vegetable chili, which sells 100 units. It has a selling price of 125. Our raw food cost is 57 cents. And then we are, have a prime cost of a dollar. Hamburger, you have 1,000 units sold. Selling price is $2. Raw food cost is 90 cents. Prime cost is 150. And then we have enchilada. We're selling 100. We sell it at $3. The raw food cost is going to be $1.14. And then our prime cost is $1.75. So we'll get that down. And then we're thinking, okay, well, what do I do with that information? So let's go back up to the question. So it says, based on the sales report, which item would the dietitian most likely remove? So when I'm thinking about this, I'm like, okay, well, it's telling me how many items I have sold you know, then it's telling me, it's telling me, you know, what the costs are for this. So what this is really asking me is thinking about that menu matrix of like my dog, my star, my puzzle, my plow horse. And we know we want to remove the dog, the thing that doesn't make a lot of money and is not very popular. So there's a few ways you could go around this. What I would suggest is finding, you know, kind of the profit off of each item um, and then kind of also adding in my units sold. So let's start with the lasagna. So the lasagna is going to be bought by 200 people and then it has a profit of a dollar because the selling price is $3.00. And then my prime cost is going to be $2. So I'm going to make a dollar profit. If I extrapolate that out to units sold, I'm making $200 off of this and selling $200. Okay, next up I have the vegetable chili. So off the vegetable chili, I'm making $0.75. Cents, but I'm, and I'm selling $100, right? So, you know, always got to do your calculator, even though, could we do this in our heads? Yeah, sure. But we check. It's like me at work. I'm like, okay, one gram per kilo. Okay, 50 times one. Okay, perfect, 50. So I'm going to make $75 off my 100 chilies. Okay, then we got hamburger. So hamburger, I'm selling 1,000. And I'm going to make a 50 cent profit 
So 1,000 times 0.5 is 500 dollars. Okay. And then I got my enchiladas. So my enchiladas, I'm selling for $3. And then I have a $1.75 cost. So my profit is $1.25. And I'm selling 100. So I do that times 100. Okay. So now what I have here is kind of my updated chart where I'm saying, okay, my lasagna is making me $200, I'm selling $200. My chili is making me $75, and I'm only selling $100. My hamburger, I'm making $500, and I'm selling $1,000. And then my enchilada, I'm selling $100, and I'm making $125. So we're looking for the one that is not as popular and the one that doesn't make me as much money. So that one that doesn't make me a lot of money would be the chili because we're not, we're only selling 100 and I'm only going to make 75 bucks off of it. Um, my star would definitely be the hamburger here. Um, you know, I'm making the most money off of, you know, I'm making you know, the most money off of it, you know, it's not the most pro profitable like per unit sold, but it's going to make me the most money and the most people are buying it. So that's how I would be approaching, that's how I would be approaching this type of question. So that's a great question to ask. Okay, the next one uh, was based on the following labor and production figures, what is the number of full-time equivalent employees 40 hours per week needed for the fiscal year. And so this one is a great one because FTE is one of those topics that a lot of people kind of glaze over because you're like, oh yeah, 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 I know how to do this, right? So what we would be thinking about is we're saying, okay, it takes 15 minutes to make a meal and we have 500, no, not five. 599,040 meals. So I would do my 15 minutes, and again, keep your units tight, get it right, times my 599,040. So that's 599,040, just so we're all on the same page. Okay, so I do that in my calculator. This one we definitely won't pretend we do in the head. Oh, God. Let's just read these numbers out. There's a lot of numbers here. So it's eight, nine, eight, five, six, zero, zero minutes. Because we're we said 15 meals per minute. So then with this, I'm gonna divide it by 60 to get total hours. And that's a step a lot of people forget. So my total hours is equal to one, four, nine. 760, so 149,760 hours. And then divide that um, by, we're looking for full-time equivalents. So then, and it's in a year. So we know an FTE in a year is 2,080 hours. 
many steps, and we get 72 FTs. Perfect. Okay, that was a long one. Okay. Perfect. Keep going. Okay, so next one, which hormone is elevated in Prader-Willi? And this is another great example with kind of those smaller diseases like Prader-Willi. We need to know a few different facts about them besides, you know, that they're just, you know, tend to be obese and they're really, really hungry. And so in these patients, their ghrelin hormone is elevated. So ghrelin, I always like to think of gremlin, like always eating, mm, 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 mm. You know, and usually we can shut it off when we're full. But for these patients, it's on, it's high, so they're always constantly eating. And that's why the treatment for these patients is going to be, um, you know, to kind of, you know, hide, hide the food. Okay, next one, we got another math one. So a patient is receiving a 1.2 calorie per milliliter formula with 68 grams of protein per liter 81% free water, and it's running at 75 milliliters per hour for the last 24 hours. The patient's also receiving flushes of 120 milliliters per hour every four hours. What is the total free water intake of the patient in the past 24 hours? So this is a great question because it's giving us a ton of fluff. We really want to kind of be like, okay, it told me lots and lots of things. I only want water. So I don't need the concentration because it already told me the water. It's 81% water. I don't need the protein. Okay. I need that it's running at 75 milliliters per hour times 24. So let's do that. So if we do 75 milliliters per hour times 24 hours, my total tube feed volume is 1800 milliliters of water. And then I'm saying 81% is free water, so I do my 1,800 times 0.81. And so that's telling me just from the tube feed, I'm getting 1,458 milliliters of free water. Okay, but then I'm also getting flushes of 120 milliliters every four hours. So it's not times four, it's times six, right? Because Q four hours is six times a day. So I do 120 times 6. So that's another 720 milliliters. So again, remember, Q4 hours is 6 times a day. Q6 hours is 4 times a day. That can get really tricky. So if I add up my flushes, 720 plus 1,458 from my tube feed, then I'm getting 2,178. Eight, um, milliliters and it looks like from a lot of this you know a key piece is the fact that you know some people forgot about um, forgot about the flushes so definitely a good one go get that one and practice it if you haven't already okay next one we got another tube feeder so we have a patient is sedated on propofol how many calories has this patient received in the last 24 hours if the rate was at 23 milliliters per hour times 12 hours and then decrease to 11 milliliters per hour in the remaining 12? 
So this one is trying to trick us because there needs to kind of be two steps. So what I'm going to do is find the total volume of the propofol. So for the first 12, so I'm going to do 12 times 23 milliliters per hour. So 12 hours times 23 milliliters per hour. So in the first 12 hours, my patient got 276 milliliters. Okay, in the second 12, so 12 times 11, 12 times 11, that I'm getting 132. So if I add 132 plus 276, I'm getting a total milliliters. Again, let's not miss milliliters is 408. And that will be one of the answers, 408. But that's milliliters. So don't forget to write your milliliters times 1.1 calories per milliliter. And so the answer here is going to be 448.8, you can round that to 448.9. Um, so that's another really great one. So thanks for sharing that one. Um, and then another TPN question from me. So I said the TPN runs at 95 milliliters per hour has 60% has 60% dextrose in 300 milliliter solution, 11% protein in 750 milliliters, and 15 grams small in a 20% IV solution of 350 calories. So lots of different stuff going on here. Something to remember is in this case, again, I don't need the rate because what I'm doing is just finding how many grams are in each individual solution and then multiplying it by the calories. So the first one's dextrose. So if we do 300 milliliters of dextrose times 0.6, because it's a 60% dextrose solution, I'm getting 180 grams of dextrose and I'm gonna multiply that times 3.4 and get 612 calories from dextrose. I'm going to do the same thing with protein. The volume, 750 milliliters times 11%, 0.11. I'm going to get 82.5 milliliters times 4, and I'm getting 330 grams. And then with my lipid, remember, it's a 20% IV fat solution, so it's 2 calories per milliliter, so I don't need grams here. So I'm going to do that if I do 2 times 350 that's 700. So if I add that all up, that is 1,642. And that looks like um, what, you know, a few people got and then looks like they didn't necessarily add up. So don't forget to add it up when you're doing it on your own. Um, Next question, not necessarily a question, but a reminder of which foods have vitamin K. So remember, we want to know what are the sources and not just being like, you know, dark, you know, yes, dark leafy greens, but don't forget, you know, it's also in things, you know, like collard greens and turnips and onions too. So definitely if you need to, don't be afraid to look up a chart. 
Thanks for tuning in for this week's practice question review. Don't forget that we are doing these live on my Facebook page, Registered Dietitian Exam Tutoring with Dana RD, every Sunday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, and I would love to have you join live. You can also head to my website, danajfnutrition.com, to find out about the latest classes as well as study tips and services. Thanks for tuning in.